All right, you guys, welcome to the show. Are we on? Is everything working good? What's going on, man? How you doing? Good, man. Good. I hope we got a lot of time to talk about things tonight. Maybe I should just talk really, really fast because we got a lot of things to cover. Oh, we're uh, good. Just go ahead. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. Yeah. Well, we had a, a good talk yesterday about all the things we had to talk about, and now there's even more things to talk about than that. <laughs> you know what? I'm caught up. I'm caught up on a lot. Let me, uh, let me announce to put this out on Twitter. Yeah. Good. That's it. Got this thing. All right. Looks like we got people in the chat room thingy saying things. That's good. How you guys doing? Pete, is it okay if we start with Waco? I'm yeah, sorry. I'm good I with got that, a, man. I got a personal problem um, with this. Um, so uh, everybody's good friend, especially mine, James Bovard, uh, emailed me yesterday and said, hey, look at this new documentary about Waco. And um, it's it's really great, man. It's um, It feels kind of old-fashioned, like it was made in the 90s, which is funny that the 90s really does feel old-fashioned to me now. But anyway. <laughs> um, but the lady's an expert in forward-looking infrared technology, Pete. And she's examining the flare footage, and she's doing her own separate re-debunking of the Danforth reports. Or, I don't know, she refers to a Cox report. I'm not sure if that means Chris Cox, the former congressman, that he had had a congressional report on the FLIR as well. But anyway, um, she, um, she dang all, um, sorry, I forgot the bumper music was still playing. Um, she uh, uh, goes through and re-debunks the debunking all along. He's the producer. They had the best footage all along, but it was just in the giant box full of piles and piles of stuff that they just didn't get to it until later. And they were like, oh, look, it's the first generation dub, you know? Anyway, it's clear that it's um, that there's gunfire in that footage. But she goes and says, now, in this case, here is Glint. And then here's the difference. And it's all fully scientific and great. And I'm going to have her on the show tomorrow. Oh, so cool. it's kind of. Yeah, I guess we'll revisit this topic next week when I've already, you know, interviewed her and we've all heard it then. Um, but the video, I, uh, you know what, I have it here and now all of a sudden I forgot the name of it. Uh, when the government lied, Waco's infrared deception. It's by Barbara Grant. Barbara Grant. And it just costs a couple of bucks to rent on Vimeo is how I watched it. Um so that looks really good. And for people who are unfamiliar, the story just real quick is that on the final day of the FBI uh, and Delta Force assault on the people there, that there was an FBI plane flying over overhead with a forward-looking infrared. So this isn't night vision where it's, you know, green tint enhanced light. This is infrared footage. And anyway, you can see in there there's machine gun fire as the feds are killing the Branch Davidians as their house is burning down. And... um and I, I think at one point she addresses the, one of the origins of the fire. But anyway, uh, the main point is the machine gun fire. Now, the excuse is, no, 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 these are just sun reflections off of, you know, glass or other, you know, metal material, whatever it is in the yard. And she explains here how that's not true. Now, it's important to note that part three of the series, the rules of engagement, a new revelation. The third part is called the FLIR Project. And our friend Will Porter, by the way, has that on his YouTube channel. Anybody right. can watch that on YouTube right now. And um, 
And what they do is they show how John Danforth, Senator John Danforth in 1999, after the movie A New Revelation, proved that they used uh, incendiary rounds, no, uh, pyrotechnic rounds, I should say, um, in the assault that um, then they had to do a new cover-up fake investigation, independent investigation. So they brought in Senator John Danforth, a Republican senator, and he came and did the new cover-up. And the way they did it was they recreated the footage out at Fort Hood where they had planned the original assault in the first place, you know, because that's what the U.S. Army is for, attacking church folk on Sunday morning. But anyway, so um, they went out to Fort Hood and they did the exact same test. I mean, they set it up perfectly, Pete, except the only exceptions was they chose a windless day instead of a windy day. And also they took a water truck and they sprayed down the area so that there would be no dust and all the dirt would be wet on the ground. And then they gave the uh, the soldiers or the cops who was firing the, you know, the, the people doing the test firing, gave them extra long barrels on their rifles. And instead of their, you know, M4s or whatever it was they would have had. And then gave them uh, flash suppression, uh, flash suppressant ammunition that would have been different than what was assigned to the HRT at the time. So, in other words, they rigged the test completely and totally from A to Z, from top to bottom, to make sure that then the FLIR would not show. And then they go, "See, no flash." Yeah, well, that's because you cheated. And so, anyway, um, that was their supposed debunking of the examination in a new revelation. And so the government's debunking has already been debunked. Now here comes this, um, you know, uh, uh, video uh, scientist to come. And, you know, she's got the highest pedigree, too, by the way. She explains, you know, her all of her expertise. She's an engineer in, you know, making infrared technology, you know, and all this stuff, the top of her field. And then she, you know, re-debunks it. Anyway, I'm rambling. But the point is that that wasn't a suicide. It was the FBI hostage rescue team and the Army Delta Force that massacred and murdered those people. And then they got away with it. They got yeah. away with it. Although, I mean, one good, this is actually some good news that mostly got overlooked was that David Chipman had to withdraw his nomination to be the ATF director. And this was the guy who has an ATF lawyer and helped prosecute the surviving Branch Davidians who were acquitted and went to prison anyway. Uh, which I've explained that on, I think, your show in the past before how that happened. But anyway, um, yeah, so had, uh, it's Thibodeau, important story. When I, last time I had, when I had Thibodeau on for a two-part show, he mm -hmm. explained how that happened too. So, yeah, I mean, they were basically, you know, a bunch of Texans said, nope, not guilty. And the judge said, yes, yes, guilty. Yep. Yeah, that's great. So what it was, I'll just explain real quick. They were charged with murder, conspiracy to commit murder of federal agents. And using a firearm in the commission of a felony. So a bunch of Texans, you're right. San Antonio jury said, man, they were defending themselves. ATF attacked first. The law in Texas says you have the right to defend yourself from, um, you know, unnecessary, you know, aggressive, deadly violence, no matter who's doing it. And so um, they were acquitted. But there are a couple of, you know, thin blue line types on the jury that insisted that, you know, these horrible lawless people can't just be allowed to get away with all of this 100% thumbing their nose at law enforcement for six weeks, refusing to come out and all of these things, which they weren't charged with. But anyway, um, and so something must be done. So they compromised and said, well, we'll find them guilty of using a firearm in the commission of a felony. 
So that comes in on, I think I got this right, but this is 25 years ago, Pete, but I'm pretty sure that comes in on a Friday. And the judge says, well, that's ridiculous. I mean, I'm dismissing that conviction because if you acquit them of the felony, you can't, you know, convict them of using a firearm in during the commission of it. And so that doesn't hold up, doesn't make sense. I'll have to dismiss that charge. Then he comes back over the weekend on Monday. He goes, you know what? I thought about it and I decided that what really happened was you meant to convict them of the felonies. You're admitting here that you agree that they are guilty of using a firearm in the commission of a felony. Well, what felony? Murder and conspiracy to admit murder of federal agents. That's what felony. And so he went ahead and sentenced them as though they had been convicted of murder and conspiracy to commit murder, even though they had been acquitted of both. It was just completely crazy. And, you know, they went to jail for 10 and 15 and 20 years. You know, they were they were sentenced as though they'd been convicted of, you know, man one or something like that, whatever the equivalent is. Um, but, you know, they went, you know, some of them went away for 15 years, I think, was about the maximum they got. Um, and just, yeah, the whole thing is madness. And so Chipman was participated in that prosecution and that was part of his reputation and you know plus just his overall uh you know emphatic support for gun control uh you know helped sink his nomination to be atf director so that's really good so yeah anyway. i mean the um when you start when you look at it when you watch i've probably you've probably watched the documentaries more than i have um rules of engagement and um new revelation but yeah. i've watched them at least five six times a piece and it's just clear i mean especially a new revelation when you have the fbi agents coming forward and go you know to confess hey you know this is what happened there yeah and then when um when gifford talks about going into you know they they looked at the evidence and they were calling like um spent tear uh, tear gas canisters silencers yeah and it, I mean, well, it was it was, just, yeah and these were pyrotechnic you know not incendiary rounds but right, pyrotechnic right. Pyrotechnic, rounds yeah, yeah. that very you know easily can start fires in, in other words incendiary rounds are meant to start fires pyrotechnic rounds very well can start fires right and that is what these were there were three of them they were at all three origins of the fire and they were all mislabeled as silencers in the evidence yeah and then the front door disappears i mean this huge steel door that would have pr proven who fired were they firing it fr from the inside were they firing through from the outside and everything right. you know and um and that goes to the initial raid not the firefight on the last day right we gotta make right. sure and keep those separate topics but yeah yeah but but you know the, the thing that kills me as people will be like well you know that was just something that would never happen again and as james bovard has pointed out numerous times there are many wacos every single day they're called swat right. raids yeah and there's exactly fifty thousand a year no i'm telling you listen i mean this is the whole thing about it's it, it's actually maybe even like an argument against continuing to flog away at ruby ridge and waco all the time is it makes it seem like these are exceptions at all like what's exceptions about them What's exceptions about them is that the good guys shot back and defended themselves and won the initial round leading to a prolonged siege and a giant media spectacle and a giant politicized, you know, series of documentaries and every other thing about it. Right. So that's what it was. It was the siege that made the difference. It was the firefight that, you know, went the other way on the first day that made the difference. But in terms of an ATF style 
you know, paramilitary raid on people's homes. I mean, this to me is almost unbelievable, man. It's, um, you know, the last numbers that the ACLU put out said it was 60,000 a year. It used to be 50,000 a year. And now it's 60. <laughs> and they're raiding over. And, and, you know, this is as pot is being legalized all across the country, too. So who are they cracking down on? You know what I mean? Like, who is getting targeted in 60,000 SWAT raids a year? And this is not hostage situations. These are contraband, you know, raids on people's civilian homes in the middle of the night. It's crazy. And so, and in fact, it's actually remarkable how rarely people get killed in these things. And they do get killed in them. You know, the Washington Post keeps a very close count of it now. And it's, you know, on average, two people are killed every single day by the police in this country. Um, I think actually, you know, in terms of those night raids, those paramilitary night raids, that's a very small percentage of those, which to me is just a miracle. I mean, I don't know how in, in the land of the gun in the USA, where at least half the people are armed, people are breaking in your windows and doors in the middle of the night violently. It's amazing how rarely cops get killed and how rarely citizens get killed in those things. Where I guess, you know, the flashbang and the muzzle right in your face and guys screaming, get down, get down. It's too late. You know, it's over so quick. Colin Powell doctrine, overwhelming force, one and done. Like, you know what I mean? The battles, coup de main, right? They, they occupy your bedroom before you can even flinch. And so, you know, but yeah, that's the way they do business. 60,000 raids a year like that. So, and you know, this is a, should be a point of overlap where right-wingers can understand how, you know, poor and minority people feel being on the receiving end of that thing. Like, look, this is just like Waco. Remember being mad about that? Hell, same thing for the wars. What's Iraq? It's at Waco over and over and over again in Iraq War II, you know? The Delta Force showing up and obliterating everyone and moving on to the next one. I've seen that movie before, you know? Um, so, yeah, the parallels are important, but we shouldn't let the, we shouldn't let the, the, the message of those uh, events, like, diminish the, you know, what else is going on in the world? It ain't like the last time they did a Ruby Ridge was in 1992. Wouldn't that be great if the last time there was a Ruby Road? Yeah, we'll put that shit in a museum. Yeah, one time the marshals, the ATF and the marshals and the FBI HRT got way out of control, but not after that, though. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, and by the way, just real quick, and I, I promise not to go on and on about this, but just I noticed, I don't know if you saw this on Twitter, somebody tagged us both in this thing, where they added a disclaimer to <laughs> your interview of me about Oklahoma City. That like, check here, and then it's a link to the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's like, yeah, this one guy did it. Everybody knows that, you know, yeah. and, and then that's it, like, which is <laughs> fine. I don't, you know, it's not like the official version has been kept from people or anything like that. I don't think it was like an entry on like why the theory that a bunch of FBI informant neo-Nazis did it is not correct. I didn't see a link to that, you know? And in fact, frankly, I seem to remember not doing a very good job explaining in that interview. Like of all the times I've talked about Oklahoma City on the radio or on 
you know, YouTube interviews with people and whatever. I think I did not do a real good job of really even talking about it in that one, other than to say like, yeah, McVeigh's friends were Nazis and look into it or, you know, some kind of thing. But that was enough to get fact checked, which is nice because you know what? Let people look into that. Yeah. You know? Well, the, um, oh man, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, the, um, yeah, the whole thing. Then you mention that, the son of a former prime minister of Germany or president of Germany was at Elohim city and he was being handled by the Southern poverty law center. And it's like, well, well, well you know, Hey, um, there's something about that, you know, I, yeah. It's well, look, I mean, weird. <laughs> okay. <laughs> don't let me spend the rest of the hour talking about this. All right. I swear. Don't. Um, <laughs> But look, a guy was just tweeting about this yesterday where he went digging through the archives at the Libertarian Institute. It just so happens, Pete, that our little old Libertarian Institute. Do we introduce ourselves at the beginning of the show? I'm Scott. He's Pete. We're from the Libertarian Institute. And if you go to libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC, you will find the world's single greatest archive of the truth about the Oklahoma City bombing. That's it. It's just there's nothing that compares to it anywhere in the universe and it's uh richard booth is the guy that gets the credit some of those documents are mine but he's the one who put it all together and and he got plenty besides and he's writing a book that we're going to publish which is going to be great and um and a guy you know i want to stop time and wrap up some okc studies you know what i'm way behind on this stuff now i've been good on it since the day it happened okay but I'm way behind on this story. I would like to go and spend a week and a half or more digging through all of that, you know? Um, but there, I'm trying to get to the point. There was a guy on the Twitter there who tagged us and or somebody tagged us eventually in the conversation. But the guy was doing this deep dive on Andre Strassmeyer. And I'm not sure if he mentioned the SPLC in the documents that he was looking at. But he was looking at where, like, they admitted that this guy was CIA. The CIA admitted that he was CIA. You know, not an officer, but an agent working for them, an asset working for them. And that next to his name was the code AO. I like this because this is weedy stuff, you know, not smoking weed, but like in the weeds. And now, so if you go back to The Secret Life of Bill Clinton, which is a very kind of um, trashy name for a book, but it's good journalism by Ambrose Evans Pritchard. He talks about this in there. He goes, look at this document. They go, Andre Strassmeyer, A.O. And then, so they had said, oh yeah, that meant uh, admitted that he overstayed his visa. And they're like, bullshit, that is not what that means. And then, I'm sorry, I forget the exact quote now, but it was you know, something about being an asset of theirs, an informant of theirs. And then, yeah, this is the guy who at least is the center of all the conspiracy theories about Oklahoma City was that he was the agent provocateur who was, look, he was tied to, to McVeigh. You know, the, the degree to which they deny that he was tied to McVeigh when it's proven that he was tied to McVeigh in so many ways, including McVeigh calling him right after arranging the rider truck. And including and people can see this and i only know this thanks to richard booth i had totally missed this um but there's footage of these strippers from 
the uh, hotel. You can find this on YouTube right now. Um, I should have had it queued up so we can punch it into this thing. I need to learn how to do all that for this <laughs> video show. But um, what it is, is these strippers would always fight and steal from each other and stuff. And so the manager put a camera in their dressing room. And they all knew about it and stuff. It wasn't like secret, but it was just to keep the peace, basically. But so we had audio and video. So there's footage of the stripper going, yeah, there's, you know, the that weird German guy? Well, you know the other guy with him? I'm paraphrasing here, folks, but this is the deal. The other guy with him was saying, yeah, you better remember me because on April the 19th, I'm going to be real famous and you're going <laughs> to never forget this night and this and that. And you can see the footage of her that night in real time saying to her friend, gee, Stacy, these weird guys out there are saying this weird stuff. Oh, that German guy? Yeah, no, his friend was the one who said this. You know? Anyway, and there's more. There's a ton more. There's a million more. I'll tell you this. Nobody saw McVeigh in Oklahoma City who did not see him with somebody else. Okay? Not one person saw him alone. Remember when they tried to sell that John Doe number two was Middle Eastern and it was um, radical Islamic terrorism? Yeah, and, and who was that? It was Lori Milroy from the American Enterprise Institute in concert with Judith Miller, Scooter Libby's girlfriend, and the lady that lied us into war with Iraq. And then and Glenn and then Beck back in the early 2000s picked up on that and was reporting on that too. Uh, it it was painful. I'll tell you, um, someone just was saying to me the other day, hey, in your book, you say that Chris Hedges helped lie us into war. I thought he was an anti-war guy. So I says, oh, yeah, no, eventually, sure. But and then I linked to three New York Times articles where he's saying Iraq backs Al Qaeda. And then one of them is a positive review of Milroy's book. Oh, my God. It was Saddam was behind Osama all along. Oh, oh, you know what? I guess being an anti-war guy after that is OK, but maybe he should just go wash dishes and not say anything anymore after that. You know, <laughs> washing dishes is a is a admirable profession i'm not knocking that at all i i've washed plenty of dishes in my life believe me for low pay i'm just saying you know when i was washing dishes my opinions belonged to me and the couple other poor suckers stuck with me back there in the kitchen i don't think anybody should have to listen to you after you wrote a positive review of Lori milroy's book in the new york times <laughs> i didn't even know that one i just found it anyway um, you want to you want to jump topics or you want to? Oh yeah, no. Look, the 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 top story of the day is the Yemen resolution passed. They stuck an anti-Yemen war resolution on the NDAA. It passed by just a couple of votes. Eleven Republicans supported it, and two hundred and eighteen of them, or whatever it was, opposed it. Or two? No, it was less than that. Fewer than that. Two hundred something Republicans opposed it. So does it go you to know, Biden or does Biden. it go to the Senate? Uh, well, the, no, the Senate has to pass it. Then it goes to conference committee and see the bad, like watered down version of the resolution also passed. So then, of course, the game will be to switch them out in conference committee and all that. So it's a minor victory and it's going to take, you know, a lot more uh, activism to, you know, try to actually get it through. But, you know, so Ro Khanna from California, the Democrat, he's really all about this. And you know what? That horrible, horrible Chris Murphy who I'm almost certain is like the single worst senator on Russiagate, like even to this day, for whatever reason, he's good on this too in the Senate. And um, that's a Connecticut. And, and, yeah. And Bernie Sanders is good on it too. And um, so, you know, there, I don't know. I, I'm going to have, uh, I got to have um, uh, 
Hassan, uh, uh, pardon me, um, Hassan El Tayeb is from the Friends Committee on National Legislation. He's this great activist working on this. And um, so I'm going to have him back on the show. I had him on a couple of days ago. I'm going to have him back on the show to um, to do the update on, you know, what's the next stage of activism and all of that. Um, but, you know, I'll take note that um, when the House and the Senate passed the war. Oh, I was going to say, I'm sorry. If this if if they screw this whole process over and and go on as a status quo, which is probably expected here, if they get away with doing that, I think Rokana will then introduce another war powers resolution thing the way that he did under Trump, which was world historical that the Congress actually issued, you know, the war powers resolution and passed it to try to get which they could have defunded the damn war. But, you know, that's what they're trying to do with this thing is halt all funding for any participation in it. Um, but anyway, so they'll move on to that. And but under Trump, when they did that, of course, Trump vetoed it. But when the Senate passed that, the UAE withdrew their army and said, you know what, we better cycle this thing down. We'll keep paying Al Qaeda mercenaries, you know, to fight. But they pulled their army out of there, which. You know what? Like on the margin, that doesn't sound like much unless you're the one on the margin doing the living or dying, you know, under their torture and under their murderous, you know, campaign there. So it's not nothing. And um, and so, you know, I think that kind of thing is important, which. um, You know, Biden promised he's going to end the war, Pete. He goes, look, he came in at the beginning of February and he had promised this a year ago, the beginning of February. He goes, listen. We're going to help the Saudis like with Patriot missiles and drones, like with Patriot missiles and anti-aircraft stuff to shoot down missiles and drones that the Houthis try to send across the border into Saudi. But we're not going to help the Saudis bomb Yemen anymore. No more maintenance, no more logistics, no more intelligence, no more coordination, no more, you know, re refueling uh, supplies of bombs or any of that. And then they just dropped it and then they just went on anyway. And I don't know that they've gone on to the full extent as before. But I know that Admiral Kirby, the spokesman for the Pentagon, admitted that they're still doing maintenance. Well, if they're not doing if the Americans aren't doing the maintenance and the care and feeding of the F-15s, they don't fly. So that's it. You know, the princelings don't take care of those planes. They don't know how to take care of those planes. And so, um, in other words, Joe Biden has not done what he said he was going to do to to call the thing to an end here. And so it's it's got to be pushed. And then I want to bring up a side point here, and this is not a criticism of anybody else because it's actually like the opposite of that. Um, but I'll just mention everybody's friend, Sal, the great memer from uh, Twitter, was saying, no, we should not be calling our congressmen and asking them to do the right thing because this is my words, not his, but like that, you're being cucked or whatever. You should just do the, you know, I guess, adopt alternative financial systems and and drop out of of the grid and and, you know, if we all did that, if we all quit participating in the thing, then it would go away faster, better or something. And my thing is this, man, is that he ain't wrong, but also I'm not wrong. And and so my call is just, you know, against sectarianism. You know, at antiwar.com, you know, it's all run by libertarians. It always has been. But we're not sectarians. We're trying to end the wars and we're trying to convince everybody that anti-war is for you. And you always hear me talk about how when Ron Paul ran for president, he goes, listen, this is, you know, my paraphrase of him. If you like your identity, you can keep it right. This mythology that you have to be a liberal Democrat or worse to be anti-war is not true. Look at me. 
Republican Texas conservative Christian congressman, anti-war as hell, more anti-war than Michael Moore. And why? Because of fidelity to the Constitution and all of these kind of principles and precepts and stuff. So people go, oh, okay, it's I can be anti-war because of you know what that guy's bringing forward or that kind of thing. So this is the same kind of thing that, you know, this is why if you ask Eric Garris, the way he'll say it is we run Daniel Ellsberg and Pat Buchanan on the same day. You know, my book, I just got Noam Chomsky said, uh, Fool's Aaron is the best book on Afghanistan he ever read. Well, but that's also what uh, Colonel Douglas McGregor, the regular guest on the Tucker Carlson show, the, you know, crusty old conservative America firster said the same thing, said he, he told the Army War College to read it. You know, I'm not like patting myself on the back about that. I'm just trying to say that that's what at antiwar.com, that's what our mission is, right? Is to appeal to everyone, to get everyone to agree, not to become libertarians, but to get good on Afghanistan, get good on Yemen, get good on the things that matter the most to us, which is the wars. And I think as libertarians, there's no need to be sectarian, especially considering that libertarians are going to do their own thing anyway. Right. Like I have fantasies. We're like, what if every libertarian focused only on Yemen for the next six months? All of us. And that was all of our thing. Maybe that would move the margin that would get it done in whatever fashion, working pressure on Congress or whatever you got. But if it was just Yemen, 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 Yemen at Reason Magazine and at Cato and at Antiwar.com and all. But that ain't going to happen. Right. Yemen, that's the thing I care about a lot. And I mean, a lot of people care about it, but they're not going to be activists on it all the time. But that's fine. Right. So the thing is, considering libertarians going to do whatever they're going to do anyway, there's ain't no reason to fight about why, like, everybody ought to be doing the same thing as me or everybody ought to be doing the same thing as you. And I know you get into these kind of squabbles on, on uh, opposite sides of things uh, of these sometimes, too. And I can and especially in the past, but I'm really trying hard to not be sectarian. I, I'm very guilty of like. You know, that guy, Alex Narasta at Cato, who a lot of people don't like for a lot of reasons or whatever it was. I misread a tweet of his to like really be like some pretty crass justification of nuke in Japan. And I was like, I hate this guy. And I hereby kick him out of the libertarian movement and screw him and all this. And then like I realized eventually somebody said to me, dude, Horton, you got that tweet wrong. He's he's not adopting that position. He was just outlining what that position was. And you just totally took the wrong tone and freaked out. And of course, what was it? I got mad. And so I got stupid. And then so I started this sectarian fight with a guy who I've always gotten along with. I've interviewed Alex before. And I did a speech with him at the New Jersey Libertarian Party thing. And I think he could be a jerk to other people on Twitter before. Uh, I've seen him do that and whatever. But I don't. Here I picked a fight with a guy and I shouldn't have. I, and I apologize and, and made it right with the guy. But that's a lesson to me. It should be a lesson to all of us that like. There ain't nothing wrong with being a Catoite. The Cato guys do incredible work. And the look at the Young Americans for Liberty and the effect they have, especially in the state houses, in trying to get, you know, uh, state house level Republicans to hold true to Ron Paul type principles rather than just, you know, going with the whatever the country club guys or the Baptist ministers or whatever pressure group is saying at whatever time, but to hold them to constitutionalist type principles. You got the, the Free State Project up there who those guys now, they told me they rule more than half the House of Representatives up there, even though they don't have the speakership, but they kind of support the speaker because he ain't too bad, something like that. Um, you got, 
you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever all, you know, different ideas. People want to do um, um, homesteading at sea. What do you call that? Where they're doing the, the seasteading sea setting. and all that. Yeah. Like, even if, like, let's say you just think like, no, dude, I'm a full Hortonian and we got to all just only be anti-war all day, no matter what. Like, you got to admit that seasteading is an interesting topic that might get some stranger interested in libertarianism at all, and he might find the Yemen war in two weeks. And seasteading might be the perfect path to that. So you might think, man, that's kind of pissing in the wind. But you know what? Someone else might think that's a really cool idea. So, like, uh, that's all I'm saying. I'm not I'm I'm only saying that Sal is wrong, that I'm wrong. But I ain't saying that Sal is wrong. I think Sal's great. And he's and and look at how much influence he has with all this great crazy memes that he puts on the Twitter all damn day. You know, it's one yeah. of my favorite guys out there. So, um, but yeah, anyways, I just think that, uh, you know, if, if I was telling people that, look, guys, democracy is really important and we got to all believe in it really, really hard and call our congressman and make our congressman love us and care about us and respect us and do what we say. Well, that would be a load of crap, right? But I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, listen, if we make their phone ring off the hook, then that moves the margin a little bit. That's a little bit, you know? And, you know, I don't know. Um, the guy, I called my congressman today. I talked to his staffer. And um, he's a Republican for a Republican congressman. And I go, look, Barack Obama's the one who did this. You know? And he's bombing. He's not, he's not bombing Al-Qaeda. Him and Biden, I skipped Trump. Him and Biden, they're not bombing Al-Qaeda. They're bombing for Al-Qaeda. They're bombing Al-Qaeda's enemies and strengthening Al-Qaeda. I mean, that's just true. I know it sounds crazy, but look it up, man. 2015 on, we've been fighting the Houthis for the benefit of Al-Qaeda. Even Obama's friends at the New York Times and CNN admit it. And admit it is the correct term. They're like, geez, I mean, we kind of got to admit that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like, that's the way they frame it. Because it is. Um, and so, I mean, at least I planted a seed in that guy's head. He understood what I said in clear enough English and he's not going to forget it. I don't know if it's going to make the difference for him, but it's a little bit of something. And, and I was looking, it's not up yet. The roll call. I wanted to see if my congressman voted good on it. I bet he didn't, but, um, be interesting to see, but it did pass. And look, so what's the opposite of that? As far as the activism, what if just nobody did the activism? What if everybody just said, well, whatever, the military is going to do what the military is going to do and the Saudis going to do what the Saudis are going to do and Boeing and Raytheon and Lockheed are going to do what they're going to do and there's nothing we can do about it and then they just didn't do anything. Then that resolution would not have passed today. We wouldn't have moved the ball forward at all, right? This wouldn't be an issue in the Congress at all. And, you know, again, don't the difference it makes is only marginal. I'm not selling, you know, magic elixir or anything. But in this case, we're talking about the worst thing in the world, right? There's no, I, I spun my globe, but I thought real hard about it. There's not another thing going on in the world that's as bad as what's going on in Yemen right now. And it's our government that's doing it. So, you know, it seems like, um, you know, Michelle Flournoy, the horrible Michelle Flournoy, uh, her and her group in the 90s at the Pentagon coined the phrase full spectrum dominance. And, but that's so, that's what we need to do, right? The libertarians need to be the loudest voice in the libertarian party. That'd be great. And the libertarians need to be the loudest voice in the Republican Party and the loudest voice even among the Democrats, the loudest voice among the, uh, you know, MMA fighter community and the Hollywood nerds and the tech bro geeks and the 
whatever factions you got, the Black Lives Matter people, whoever it is, the libertarians are the ones who thought all this stuff through already and already, you know, have the right answers to all of this stuff. And so we should be, you know, flooding the zone, as they say. Um, and instead of like everybody concentrate on one thing, everybody, as Ron Paul says, concentrate on your own thing, figure out what it is. In fact, this is where I should finally shut up and ask you a question and let you talk for a while. Cause I know you've been thinking long and hard about, well, what it is that you want to do other than just a show that you want to really focus on your local politics. And truth is, I just don't have time to listen to everybody's shows anymore. So, or never did really. So I listen to your show sometimes, but I don't know like exactly what all your thinking is about, um, you know, where it is that you want to focus your efforts in the near and medium term future and stuff like that. So why don't you tell us? Yeah. And I think it is local politics. And you know, unfortunately, I guess in a way that foreign policy would take a back seat because you're just concentrating on what's, what's most local. And unfortunately, like in local constitutions, if there is, if your local town has a constitution, there's probably not going to be written in null, state nullification that you can nullify state. But you can just get to the point where if you get a few people in there, you get some really good influence, which is going to take money. But let's face it, we're, <laughs> that's part of it. Um, right. You get a couple people who are um, on your side, elected, and then you start pushing it in a direction of liberty of more independence of privatization of some things and you really start infesting them with that kind of thing i mean literally your local sheriff is probably more important than the army the u.s army at this point your local sheriff can keep the department of health and you know the the health department that wants to come in and make sure that everybody got jabbed if there's a mandate your sheriff can go no Nope, you're not coming in here. This is our We've town. We've seen that. Too. You know, yeah. 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 We, I mean, we saw that in the last year, right? Especially like in California where some of those sheriffs were just, nope, we're not doing that. Sorry. What are you going to do about Sal, the Sal says politics. Sal, Sal says politics legitimizes their claim, in my opinion. Same reason you don't negotiate with terrorists. Here's the problem. That sounds great. I love the sentiment, but me voting in a local election doesn't legitimize it. It legitimizes it because 99% of my neighbors believe it's legitimate. And I love the whole thing about if we all drop out, they have no power, but we're not all going to drop out. So stop living in Ancapistan in your head or Agoristan in your head. There is a real world here with real people who desire safety and they think that that safety is the local police or the national. If there's a market for something, it's going to be provided. This is simple economics. This is Austrian economics. If there is a market for protection and they want it to be centralized, they are going to get centralized protection. The best thing that you can do is on the most local level, try to influence that as much as possible. Saying that everybody dropping, not everybody's going to drop out. Not 2% are going to drop out. I'm sorry. I love the well, idea. The libertarians dropped out. You know, I, that would be 3% of the population, 2% of the population. Yeah. Now, I used to think, I'm sorry, did I already say this? I was thinking this earlier. I used to think when I was a kid that if all the hippies, instead of like doing drugs and like being hippies and listening to Jimi Hendrix, had all gone clean for Gene all along, 
and it focused and and the, you know on the civil rights movement all those people if everybody had all got together and all just focused on ending the war in vietnam maybe they could have ended it five years earlier or something like that but the thing is that's actually bullshit, right? Like if all those hippies had not been hippies and had all just been the best anti-war Democrats they could be, that that wasn't going to change everything. It might've moved the margin a bit, but so really, and at the same time, think about how much doing acid and, and playing crazy music and all of that actually did get through to people and make people freer in so many ways. You know what I mean? We're like, Maybe they didn't end the war. Maybe the war lasted an extra year, but they blew a lot of minds too. So what the hell, you know, it's the same thing. And again, like I'm all for agorism. By all means, use some crazy shit coin at your farmer's market and get away with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Oh, I have no problem. Yeah. I have no problem with it. I'm just not, I'm not deluding myself into thinking it's going to take down the empire. Yeah, it's going to take a lot of things to take down the empire, but there is a way to protect yourself from the empire in the meantime. And having a police force on your side is one way to do it. I mean, well, that's where the birchers anyway. You know? Well, yeah, that's the yeah. way the birchers. That's the way the birchers had it right. I mean, the birchers were always right about that. I mean, they they supported their local police when the local police were still doing t terrible things, but they theoretically they had the right idea. Yeah, you know, and. You know, Hoppe wrote about this 25 years ago, talking about taking over local towns and like creating 10,000 independent city states. It's just taken us 20. It took 18 months of lockdowns and people being threatened to be have things injected into their body in order yeah. for people to start talking about stuff like this. Imagine if 25 years ago, people had started implementing and started um, going after their local their local government libertarians. Imagine where we could be right now. But, you know. Let's start it now. You know, I mean, and do uh, do agorism. Um, do whatever the hell you think is going to um, do best. But to think that yours is the only way, it's just full of shit. I mean, you're, you're full of shit. It's just like me saying that if I take over my local town, you know, here in Ohio, that Texas is going to be free. I could free Texas by doing that. No, you're going to have to do that. I mean, we can insulate ourselves, but if people started insulating themselves in certain ways, I mean, you could see what you could really see some big change. Yeah. And look, I mean, I picked basically the most impossible task of all to take on here in trying to oppose the wars and the empire. Um, and I know that you know, probably on the day I die, there will still be an American world empire. And I'll be like, ah, shucks, that kind of sucks. <laughs> you know, there's there's a, a level of uh, pissing in the wind here that I understand. You know, I've been teaching people about Iran's nuclear program for 20 years. And I look at the polls where a supermajority thinks they already got nukes. Well, hell, well, might as well have just stayed home. Well, I did. But you know what I mean? But um, at the same time, though, man, you know, the real anti-war was all the anti-war people whose minds we changed along the way. And again, on the margin, the, um, you know, the time scale on which these wars end, you know, it's just I'm only playing a very bit part in this. But if there was no anti-war movement in America at all, nobody really was objecting to this, where the, the anti-war feeling vets had nowhere to look, you know, for information to figure out what the hell's going on around here and and to agree with, to oppose this stuff with, then, 
the war in Afghanistan would still be rolling on. Our guys would still be at the Bagram Air Base right now. Um, and I think mostly it's the Taliban that won that war rather than anti-war forces in America. I'll give them the credit for that. But, um, you know, uh, it seems significant. And it also seems significant that, you know, to me, I've never really been too much of a preacher of just libertarianism itself because I don't really like arguing all about angels on the head of a pin and the non-aggression principle applies in every single circumstance that you can imagine and where I don't really like talking about that stuff so much. But I do kind of like the idea of people realizing that it's the libertarians who are the best on this foreign policy stuff year in and year out, no matter what. And that there's a reason for that. You know what I mean? And leftists think that capitalism necessarily leads to imperialism. Well, if that's so, how come the libertarians are so damn good on this stuff all the time? You know, there must be something more to it than that. And I know we've made a lot of libertarians and a lot of anti-war guys. Just in the traveling I've done this year, I've had a lot of veterans come up to me. Just the other day on September 11th, I'm in Washington, D.C. And this guy, I forget now if he was a Marine or a soldier, came up to me and had been in the wars. Man, I'm sorry. Now I forget if he was in Iraq or Afghanistan. I think he was in Afghanistan. And anyway, it mattered to him that he had like somewhere to go to know that this, you know, what the truth of all this was, what it was that he was a part of over there and all of that. So I'll settle for that. Right. Like, I don't know, man, it's possible that me and all the people that I influenced that all call their congressmen in the last couple of days had no influence whatsoever. Probably it didn't. Right. It was probably the Quakers influence that moved the margin, but at least we're giving it a shot and we don't really know for sure. And it seems to me like it's worth trying. And especially, again, where this is the worst thing in the world. That, to me, has always been the priority with, you know, being an anti-government extremist is opposing the worst part of it. Like, I'm against the post office, too. You don't want to get me started on my rant against the goddamn post office. But in the scheme of things, I don't really give a shit about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because there's a yeah. genocide in Yemen going on, and we're going to pay attention to that instead. Well... I think uh, if we're talking about war, it seems like right-wingers have been sold, right-wingers and a lot of libertarians have been sold it, that China is you know, going to take over either militarily or monetarily the world, and we're going to be Chinese serfs. And can you talk a little bit about the AUKUS, A-U-K-U-S, because yeah. there, there's a lot of implications in that. And I have a little... I actually came up with a little history on like where where a lot of this um, with Australia actually started. Mm. So. Well, I mean, I'll just say real quickly, you know, they accused Donald Trump of being a pro-Russian traitor so much that he took a really hawkish stand on Russia. And there was even at least one good quote of his son saying, now let's see him call us pro-Russian traitors now after this, you know, kind of thing. They're deliberately been their policy that way. And I think that that's a real problem of all these right wingers accusing Joe Biden of being the Chinese puppet is that now I don't know if that yeah. really has anything to do with it or not. But certainly he has this extra incentive to be Mr. Tough Guy on China and complete the pivot to China that, you know, frankly, had not gone through very well, you know, and had been they've been hobbled with their other wars in the Middle East. That's if you do a survey of anti Afghan war articles published this year, I bet you'll find a super majority of them end with that way we can pivot to China. You know, um, it's been like that in all the papers. 
So, um, and that's a big part of that thinking. So I think, you know, that's, a, that's the real danger is that, and, oh, I, I want to bring this up real quick. Um, uh, Caitlin Johnstone, the, uh, Australian leftist published, uh, on Twitter, she, uh, posted this video of John Mearsheimer, who we like John Mearsheimer because he wrote the book, The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy with Stephen Walt. And uh, he's a decent guy on some things. But he's a realist, not an anti-interventionist. And realist just means, hey, great nations are going to play great nation games, so let's play them smart and well instead of doing stupid things for moralistic reasons. That can be pretty evil. So here he's giving a speech in Australia, and he's telling the Australians that you have to choose us or China and you have to choose us. And if you choose China or if you choose neither, you choose China. And if you choose China, then you make an enemy out of us and we will not forget it. And we will crap. We will make your life hell. We will ruin you. We will destroy you. Don't even think about telling us no. Like, wow, pretty bad. These are supposedly our friends. And he's like kind of smiling and grinning like, ha ha. You know, we're all friends here as he says it, but yeah, it's pretty clear. And so Johnstone posts this and says, I want you people to see that Australia does not join the United States of America to protect itself from China. It joins the United States of America to protect itself from the United States of America. Yeah. You know, yeah. this is crazy. This is, you know, British Empire stuff, but it's us. And then, of so, course, it does include the British Empire, as you were saying. So, you know, it was like Obama was the one who really started on the Australia right. thing. And um, yeah, him and Hillary. Yeah. Hillary teamed with the Hawks in the Pentagon and announced there would be like America's Pacific <laughs> Century. And in like November of 2011, Obama goes to the Australian Parliament, gives a speech, you know, announcing the pivot that America is back and all in on Asia and that America would rotate troops in and out of the port of Darwin in the northern part of Australia. And that after which the Australian press declared that Obama had declared a long march against China's authoritarianism. And basically the press signed Australia up for the campaign. I mean, this is this started in 2011 and it started mm -hmm. because Obama basically brought Hillary in and, you know, right. you know what's going to happen if you bring Hillary in. Right. And people can just search foreignpolicy.com, Hillary Clinton, China, and you'll see her big article about this and, you know, announcing the inauguration of the new policy. Yeah. And it's just led up to just more and more. There was a um, there was a lease that China had on the Darwin port in 2015 and the U.S. leaned on them and they were like, look, we're, our troops are going in and out of there. You know, so you have to this has to be broken. And they basically just set up Australia as anti-China and yeah. basically set set it up so that they would go to they would be on our side, our side as the war on China. Basically, the Cold War starts. I mean, yeah. we're at a, we're in a Cold War with China. People can deny that as much as they want, but you yeah. know. But then you have like China's Evergrande, their Lehman Brothers is going on right now, and um, there was some, there was an article on the BBC this week, basically trying to play it off, saying that um, their domestic they owed um, in their domestic bonds. An estimated of um, thirty-five point nine million, and they've announced that they're going to pay it off so that they can give some investors some relief. Except 
what they're you know what they bury in the bottom is that the um the developer Evergrande is also due to make an 83.5 million interest payment on overseas bonds today. So we need to see exactly what that's going to mean. Um, I mean, people people talk about the. I, I was corrected on how to pronounce it today. Was it the one? They call it. The, we pronounce it the yuan, and I think it's supposed yeah, to be the, the moon or something like that. Yeah, and um, yeah. The, from what I understand from reading Stockman, there there are countries that that China is trading with now, doing business with now, who won't even accept it. China is actually using U.S. dollars, which helps to prop up keep our house of cards going, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what, man, you know, as we discussed before, David Stockman and look, he's always a doomsayer predicting a crash, but he's always right. I don't know about the timing, but his point is not, I don't know. Yeah. China's fundamentals are strong. No, his point is their fundamentals are not strong at all. And the whole thing is such a political economy over there. And so therefore, you know, wherever there's political intervention, it's a distortion. Well, also cultural, you know, when it comes to China, when they start, when articles start being written and manifestos start being put out about how the culture has been tainted by the West. I mean, that is a clear signal that people are worried that there is panic going on over there. And what would the panic be? Is the panic over... Um, U- U.S. ships and Chinese ships in the South China Sea, you know, coming close to each other. No, this is a panic of monetary and cultural there. I mean, they're about ready. In my opinion, you could see a cultural revolution happen there. If a cultural revolution happens there, I think you've said it before. We said on the last episode, it would be directed inward. And of, of course, there'd be some economic um, damage here. But it's not going to be nearly as bad. And you know, I still see people post about worried about the Chinese military going up and, you know, crossing, you know, invading, going through Russia and crossing over the Bering Sea and coming down and invading the United States. These people are insane. They have no, <clears throat> their military is, t- first of all, one if one of their ships went up against, if one of their destroyers went up against ours, we take it down in like five minutes. I mean, their their ships aren't even on the same level. Um, you can read the book by um, by Michael Beckley, Unrivaled, and he just explains how their military is basically. It's like a Potemkin village. They have all this stuff that just looks fantastic, but it's no different than when you go into North Korea and they show you the store filled with uh, filled with with groceries. It's just it's all fake. And, well, I mean. Yeah. <clears throat> They have they got it where it counts, kid, right? Like um it's the supersonic sea skimming missiles that say that you can stay away from our coast, please. And that's enough, right? That's you know, the American military calls the I don't know what the Chinese call it. I think this the Americans made this up as their title for the Chinese strategy, and they call it A2 AD. Uh, which I'm gonna forget what that's called. What is this for now? Is it um Anti anti access area denial. That was it. I was losing access there. Anti access area denial. In other words, they can keep us out of the South China Sea if it comes to a big fight because their missiles have a longer range than our F 18s do. So, okay. Like, but other than that, and they, I don't know what kind of supplies they have of those things, but 
as far as like an offensive force to conquer outer Mongolia or Siberia or to march into Afghanistan or something like that. They couldn't like even that. go into Vietnam right now. They couldn't yeah. go into Vietnam. And of course not. Uh, the Vietnamese are hard to beat. <laughs> the Chinese know, know that too. What do you the mean? The Chinese have found that out the hard way more often, you know, harder than the Americans have. Um, so yeah, listen, I and I think you understand this, and and a lot of people understand this that this is business. It's it's big business. It you know the long range bombers. They're making a whole brand new long range bomber now. Uh, they you know continue to churn out aircraft carriers. We got 22 aircraft carriers, 11 of which are on station at all times across the planet and with their entire carrier battle groups along with them on patrol and, you know, ruling all seven seas forever. And there's just so much money in building up against the Chinese threat. Now, the Russians, I think Vladimir Putin's been real smart about this, and he just keeps cutting the defense budget. He's like, look, we're going to focus on making some new nukes keep y'all out of here but other than that he's cutting the budget it's like the ayatollah i'm not making nuclear weapons man send your iae inspectors right in they'll tell you it's cool um the chinese instead are building up but building up what from what you know right now they have two aircraft carriers the both of which i'm almost certain are used from the old Soviet Union, like one of them, I, I know one of them is a diesel carrier from the old Soviet Union that they kind of tried to revamp and use. And then they're build. I think they're building their second one now. But then for their naval air force and whatever, you're right. There's no way that they can match us on the high seas as far as all that goes. Um, but could they take Taiwan and keep us away while they do it or make the cost high enough for the Americans to keep us out while they take Taiwan? Yeah, probably. Um, you know, they've done a lot of red team exercises where they show the U.S. Navy loses a fight over Taiwan. You know, you've got to get all your assets over there. By there, it's too late anyway. And, um, but crossing the Bering Strait and marching into Alaska and down into British Columbia and Washington State and all this kind of thing. I mean, essentially, you got to not have read anything in your life before and only just listen to talk radio and believe whatever you're told and, and not have any true things to compare it to, you know, just think of the troop ships it would take to bring the PLA across the Pacific ocean. And then what are the Americans going to do while they sail across the Pacific ocean? Nothing <laughs> or sink every single one of their boats before they get past Hawaii. I mean, what are we talking about? It's crazy. Um, well, an another implication of this whole treaty between Australia, the US and the UK is the fact that France had a contract to build, um, I believe, nuclear subs for, um, right. or, yeah, nuclear subs for Australia. And this basically nullifies that contract. And now it's going to be a joint US UK venture. And France is pissed about it. And a lot of people would be like, oh, who cares what the French, you know, French say and everything. They've pulled their ambassadors from the United States and they pulled them from Australia over mm -hmm. this. And um, beautiful. Yeah, it's it, it's really awesome. And the um, the other thing that people don't really think about with this is the fact that France is one of the strongest partners in NATO. Right. So what does this do to NATO? Exactly. 
Yeah, I mean, hey, we can celebrate some silver linings. There's one, you know, to think that this could really, you know, be a break inside the NATO, uh, you know, project, which, by the way, you know, just finished being completely humiliated in Afghanistan. That was a NATO failure as well there, just as well as it was a team building exercise, in their words, uh, for them to do it. It's, you know, at their expense when they lost it the way that they did. And so, yeah, if this helps, you know, drive a real wedge. And, you know, the French are pretty proud of their independence from the NATO, uh, you know, project. They've quit NATO before and had to be brought back in. But um, so I guess, yeah, we'll see how that goes. But it is. Um, it is. Uh, you know, you got to wonder with these Democrats, right, whether they, when they when they had this conversation, like, OK, so. Are the French going to be mad <laughs> or what? Like, what do they even do? They even take this kind of thing into account, like what it's going to cost NATO or, you know, how they're going to handle that. And then back to the necessity of it. You know, it's not that the Australians are threatened by the Chinese. They're just threatened by us. We want oh, yeah. them to participate in our game. That's it. Oh, yeah. The United mm -hmm. States wants to make Fort uh, wants to make Port Darwin like Okinawa. That's exactly what they want. That's exactly mm -hmm. that's come on. We we know this. We've seen, we've been watching this game since since World War Two. I mean, we haven't been yeah. watching it, but those of us who read know what's yeah. going on. Yeah. And, you know, I think I'm probably repeating myself from last week, but it's a good one anyway. It was uh, Norquist um, was hosting the panel discussion at Freedom Fest that I was on um, with a nice young lady from Reason magazine named. Uh, I'm sorry, I forget her name right now off the top of my head. She was really good, though. Um, but Norquist said that Look, man, China's surrounded by at least adversaries, right? You know, um, or you know, people who certainly want them out, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, and you know, Pakistan and Afghanistan and Mongolia and Russia and Korea and Japan. I think that's all the way 360 degrees, right? We got Canada and Mexico and two oceans, right? Like we have no actual national security threats at all. They've got, oh, did I leave out India? I left out India. And they're, you know, where they, they've had war with India over their border in the Himalayas. Oh. Yeah. So, you know, the Chinese have a lot of defensive military needs that have nothing to do with global conquest whatsoever, but just trying to keep their own border secure and, and keep relations with all of those different states stable at the same time. The idea that they're going to rise up and take over you know, Asia, much less the United States, is just bananas. I mean, look at it again. I'm sorry, I don't remember where I said this before or not, if it's last show or repetition or not, but if they want to build a highway to Lisbon, then they're going to have to kiss everybody's ass all the way there, right? They can't be a merciless, cruel, ruthless empire rampaging through as they build a fiber optic line and a railway and a highway and electric lines and stuff for the entire breadth of Eurasia from Shanghai to Lisbon. <laughs> I mean, this is the most it's if they even really try it, this whole belt and road thing across Eurasia, is, this is like the biggest civilian project infrastructure project in the history of the world. And they're just going to let any Kazakh with a chip on his shoulder, blow it up whenever he feels like it because they go around lording it over everyone and trying to abolish Islam and 
and and you know um hoist the red flag over everybody's capital as they march through no fucking way you would need two billion chinese three billion to keep all the barbarians at bay yeah, on a project gonna, like that it's just there's just crazy to think that but but the people who listen to steve bannon on a daily basis are going to tell you that they're just going to go in there and they're going to use political influence and then they'll just be the political influence all over every country that they go through and that no. they'll ba basically every country they go through will be their vassal state sure yeah no they'll just wave their magic wand and everybody will just do whatever they say they'll just print money and everyone will be like wow money and then why hasn't anybody asked Bannon what his what his business interests are in China? The guy lived on a boat with a Chinese billionaire for like a year. What are his business interests in China? That's really that all really at true? this point. That's all. Yeah, How that's really that what boat. I, well, I mean, it's a billionaire, <laughs> man. You can imagine, you know, but yeah. I mean, think, but, but think about it. Come on. I want to know what his business interests are there. Yeah. No one's asked him that. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe he's just heavily invested in Boeing. You know, I don't know. <laughs> um, anyway, hey, listen, so people are going to get tired of us talking here real quick, especially right. me. So let me just say real quick, um, <laughs> I thought it was great the way um, uh, Mike Preisner and, um, oh, he's my guy, too. I've interviewed him a bunch of times. Help me out. Um, they both confronted W. Bush over the last couple oh, of days. God, oh, God. Oh, God. It, God. It's the guy from Fairness it. and Accuracy and Reporting who I like. Yeah. Is it Graham something? God. Somebody smart help me out. But it was Preisner, who I'm 99% sure is married to Abby Martin, right? Um, uh, he and this other guy, both, they confronted W. Bush. So Preisner was in Iraq War II, apparently, and, and is uh, yelling at W. Bush, my friends are dead. You sent me to war on a lie, and my friends are dead, and you belong in prison and all this stuff. And it's notable in the footage that I saw, you can't see W. Bush. You just see uh, Preisner saying his piece. But you can hear the crowd just groans. And the the groan, you know, it's hard to kind of intuit these sort of things. I admit that. But it doesn't sound, Pete, to me like, oh, God, this guy's being rude and interrupting. It sounded like their groan was against the substance of what he said. He goes, you killed. He goes, because of you, a million Iraqis are dead. And then the audience goes, oh, God. You know, this is in Beverly Hills. And they're just like, oh, God, a million dead Iraqis. Who cares? You know, like you're talking about that time that a squirrel got hit by a car six years ago. Give me a break, man. Nobody cares about that. Just like it's nothing at all, which actually I hate it when I hit a squirrel. You know, it's really bad. But um, if somebody did that on purpose, that would be really bad. But they're just like, oh, God, a million dead Iraqis. So anyway, but the point is that Bush didn't get to get up there and say, oh, yeah, no, I'm a nice, accepted and acceptable member of polite society. I give speeches and interviews and things sometimes. Look at me. That no, you don't get that. You get at least the you know proverbial shoe at the head, if not literally. You know, screw you, man. You're not welcome outside. Go home. Go away. If not to jail, you know, which is great narrative. Then the next day or two days later, 
this guy, I'm so sorry I'm forgetting his name. I know this guy. I've interviewed him on my show a bunch of times about stuff he's written. He's a leftist from Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting. It's not Jeff Cohn, is it? No, it's not. I don't want to look. It'll take too long. Um, Jeb Sprague? Yes, Jeb Sprague. That's exactly uh, who it is. It's in the comments. Someone got it. Oh, his. thank you. Thank you. V thank V4571. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeb Sprague. That's exactly it. Um, boy, I was not going to come up with that. What happened to that brain cell? <laughs> Shit. Uh, anyway, so Jeb says, you know, you lied us in war and you ruined my family. My cousin has shell shock and it's destroyed his life and it's destroyed our family because of your lies. And you killed all these people. And so, but in this clip, you can't see Jeb. You can only see W. Bush up there. And at first, which by the way, I like to say that he looks terrible. He looks like, boy, has he aged every bit of 20 years since then. And I know I have too. And I don't know what the hell I'm going to look like in another 20. Pretty horrible, I bet. But man, does he look like shit, dude. He looks like Bill Clinton's been stomping on his face with his jack boots and like he deserves. And so at first, when Jeb is yelling at him, he's like, hey, yeah, whatever. You know how these leftists are. They like to yell out at protests sometimes and stuff like that. And, what you know, that kind of attitude. Then one of the things that he said, I forgot which one it was. But one of the things that Jeb Sproggs said where he was like, you're a killer, you're a liar, you belong in prison, whatever, something along those lines. And one of those things really got through. And you could see where W. Bush, you know, like that Reddit, there's a Reddit I follow that's, um, I watch people die inside, you know, when like the girl they like kisses the other guy and they're like, oh, where? <laughs> and you could just see W. Bush, watch Bush die inside. When this guy says, he get he, he pushes the right button and Bush goes from <laughs> to, oh, yeah, that is true that I am a ruthless murderer. And, um, and then every, and again, everybody boos the guy. Like, how dare you? And then the, the weirdo guy on the stage interviewing him was such a strange character who's like, oh, that's so impolite. You're being very rude to the audience by interrupting today and, you know, trying to lecture the guy. Um, but I just thought it was great. And I, you know, here W. Bush thought it was safe to go outside. And then there were at least a couple of people who made sure that, no, it ain't. You're not going to get away with this. Just the same. And I interviewed the guy. I don't know if you heard this. I interviewed the guy, Montezir, all whatever the fuck, who, um, who threw the shoe at Bush. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. I interviewed him back a few a few weeks ago. And the point of that, people don't really realize maybe that that was Bush's like last few weeks in office. That was in December of 08 on his way out the door, lame duck session. So this was his like victory lap. He was going to go and do a PR thing and tour Iraq and say that he'd done a good job and created a democracy and mission accomplished on all this. And this guy's not going to let him get away with that. So he throws his shoes at him and says, you know, this is for the widows and the orphans and all the dead men of Iraq and all that you've done here. And just even though he missed with the shoes, which is unfortunate, he got his point across that like, no, no victory lap for you. This is your shame. It'll always be your shame, you know? And then that's the same thing that Mike and Jeb have done this week too to W. Bush. And I'm really grateful for it. He absolutely deserves that. You know, 20 years after September 11th, look at what he does. He goes and, and, and isn't this a perfect kind of uh, example of what he did 20 years ago too? You know, he runs in cowardly terror to give his speech out in the field in Pennsylvania because he doesn't dare show up in New York. You know, he's probably even afraid to show up at the Pentagon in D.C. and give a speech there. 
So he goes way out to the field in Pennsylvania where there'd be, you know, essentially no access to him where he can give kind of a canned speech to these people. Um, or he wouldn't have dared showed up in downtown Manhattan just because of his own guilty conscience, you know, projecting that what are people going to think? They're going to condemn me if I go there. I shouldn't go there. I'll go way out here and do it instead. Which remember on September 11th, what did he do? When he left the school, did he go to the airport and get on Air Force One and fly back to Washington, D.C.? No, he flew in cowardly terror to Louisiana. And then from there on to, uh, I think, Barksdale. Is that Barksdale in Louisiana? And then from there, he went to Nevada to Strategic Air Command headquarters to the hydrogen bomb proof bunker a mile underground or whatever it is. I'm sure it's not that far, but a giant underground base where he hid in Nevada in, in Nebraska until, um, you know, he finally left there at what, like five o'clock or something like that to get back to D.C. by 730. And he didn't get back to D.C. until 730 that night, you know, which is there's a lot of things that George Bush should be condemned for. But that's one of them, dude. What kind of loser, weak, pussy-ass leader? He should have had to resign after that. He should have been forced out immediately after that. And not, I mean, for the attack happening at all. But then I just remember, and I resent, as I remember people in my cab. You know, it's like they're minor birds. They watch TV and then they just go, yeah, I think he did a real great job being a leader that day. You know, he did a great job that day, though. And they would all say that. And I go, oh, yeah, like what? Oh, I don't know. Well, what, he, he looked at the camera and gave a speech from the Oval Office that night or where? What did he do? That was such great leadership. He ordered all the jets into the sky. <laughs> did he do any, Name one thing. And they, they can't. All they know is they heard that on TV three times. And now that's, you know, TV's magic wish on them that they have to say that now, too. And so they go around going, well, I think he's a great leader, at least that day. I mean, the attack might have happened on his watch after only eight months on the job and everything, but uh, I thought he did a great job that day. And they would all just repeat it and repeat it. And I say, really? He fled to Nebraska. Like, can you imagine? I don't think there's another man in this country. Like, if you just, okay, that's not the right way to say it. If you just picked a man at random and put him in that job, he would have gone back to D.C., right? Your neighbor, Jimmy. <laughs> he would have gone back to D.C. You know, flee to goddamn Nebraska. Anyway, I'm sorry. I just hate W. Bush so much, man. The fact that they're, you know, rehabilitating him now. The Democrats are. He wasn't that bad. Not like that mean old Trump, you know, just makes me so sick. Um, I don't know. We're already over time. Uh, yeah, let's get out of here, man. Let me, let me condemn, uh, condemn Tulsi Gabbard. Um, people mistook her. You got to remember. Barack Obama's war in Syria was outright batshit, clinically insane, just crazy shit. Call the psychoanalyst, dude. What are we doing? We're back in Al-Qaeda suicide bombers. That ain't against a secular dictatorship. It just is nuts. So she was good on that. She was like, this is crazy. She was right about that. But she's always been a hawk on the terror war. And then her statement the other day on Tucker Carlson's show was like, look, it's the Islamist ideology at all. In other words, the ideology that Islam should be the ruling state system in Islamic countries. That's the ideology that drives terrorism. And she says that's the ideology of the government of Turkey, of Iran, of Pakistan, pardon me, Pakistan and wherever she goes down the list. 
So she said we need to do targeted strikes against the terrorists. And the terrorists are the people who believe in Islamism. And the people who believe in Islamism is just about everybody, I guess, except, you know, the military dictatorship in Egypt. Um, you know, other than that, I guess we got to wage total war against everyone. And she throws in Iran, too. So it could, because it doesn't matter that they're Shiites, but as long as it's a theocracy, then same damn difference then. And so it's just nuts. And people are really surprised by that. But they shouldn't be because she's always been a hawk. And she's still in the military right now. She just got back from Africa where they were fighting some counterinsurgency campaign in, I don't know, Burkina Faso or Sierra Leone or some kind of thing where the consequences from the Libya war have spread. And so she's going, you know, over there, try to, um, and has just gotten back from being a part of that. So anyway, it is a shame. And, you know, I sent her my book and she sent me a very nice postcard saying, you know, thank you very much for the book and I can't wait to read it and this kind of thing. But she either never read it or she hated it and thought it was stupid because <laughs> I pretty much debunk all of that in the book. I thought I did pretty well. Um, and let me just say a couple things real quick about Afghanistan. The first thing is go look at libertarianinstitute.org, everybody, because we got this great article by John Vaughn and he was a soldier. He is a soldier. And he was there at the Kabul airport during this whole thing. And he wrote this absolutely fantastic essay for the Institute about what that was like on the evacuation of the fall of, of uh, Kabul. Um, so everybody go read that. That's at the Institute. And then I just want to say real quick for people who haven't been keeping up, the Pancher Valley resistance thing is, is over and done. The Taliban won. Um, Masood's son fled to Tajikistan, what, a week ago or something. So that was the last bit of armed resistance to the Taliban in the entire country, at least for now, is is done and gone and over. Um, and then they declared a new state. They announced their new ministers, and almost all of them are Pashtuns. Um, and, you know, original leaders of the Taliban going way back. And I think they named one Uzbek or one Tajik to some kind of position. Now, that's just the interim government. So we'll see if they, you know, try to take a broader approach. But remember, the reason the war was impossible is because we were trying to foist a coalition of approximately 20 percent minority groups, three of them. Uh, totaling 60 percent onto the 40 percent Pashtun population who are the plurality. So that was a recipe for failure. It didn't work. But now that also means that the Pashtuns are still just a plurality only 40%. And now they've got to figure out a way to lord it over 60%. Their, their political grouping, the, the Taliban leadership here, have to figure out a way to lord it over all the Hazaras, Uzbeks, and Tajiks too, of which there are millions, which who are the super majority of the population are not Pashtuns. So they have a huge task on their hand of, of trying to you know, form a coalition government that will be acceptable to those people. Otherwise, they're just going to face their own ongoing low-level insurgency at least um you know everybody kind of gave up quickly and they took over the country quickly but as patrick coburn said on my show hey there's still five million hazaras and if they're treated like outlaws for being shiites and the taliban just do nothing but repress them and oppress them then they're gonna fight and so we'll see how that goes um and then as far as the modernity thing they closed the girls schools they said they're going to reopen them. They just got to figure out what all the rules are going to be and all of that. But I don't know if that's really true or not. But it's, I think they kept open the, the elementary schools. But anything like junior high and above, I believe, are now, you know, closed. 
So, you know, I guess um, it's possible. I can't think of any examples, but I guess it's possible that someone could get me wrong to think that like, oh, boohoo, you're on the side of the other guys in this war. All I ever said was that the war against them was useless. But um, I also have said all along that the Taliban are bastards. And, you know, for example, they have used suicide attacks against civilians as a tactic since at least, what, 2008 or 9, um, and have just committed absolute atrocities against civilians in this war. And, and they were bastards before that. Um, the only thing that anybody ever liked about the Taliban in Afghanistan was that they were bastards, but it was just that they hanged pedophiles. And right. so it was like, all right, now these bastards I can get along with because they bring law and order. They bring it hard as hell, but there's peace in the streets. And when you live in that kind of level of poverty and chaos, that's the kind of, you know, government that people will settle for is the Taliban are, you know, they at the top, they're corrupt, of course, but just their policemen on the street don't shake you down. They really, you know, are under orders to treat people with respect and they more or less do except when they don't, but I just mean, you know, they, they keep law and order and on a sliding scale that makes them the superior government compared to a lot of different options in that country. And that's been the case since the nineties. That's how they came to power in the first place. Lynching pedophiles going from town to town and saying, we're here to kill your warlord or assimilate them, but we're the new sheriff in town. That's how it's going to be. And people celebrated. And I'm sure you saw this people celebrated when they walked right into Kabul. And Kabul is like a super minority Pashtun population. I mean, the Pashtuns, I don't know what percentage they are in Kabul, but it's a very small percent and maybe double digits, but certainly not a plurality of any kind. And they were welcomed into Kabul as Ghani fled with, you know, 100 million stolen dollars. You know, making an absolute mockery, you know, on the way out of the American thing. And then of course, there was the suicide bombing and the drone attack that killed all those civilians which um, I interviewed Matt Akins from, who's a freelance reporter who I've interviewed before, but who wrote for the New York Times, the true story of that drone attack and went and interviewed all the survivors the next day and chronicled and published the pictures of the toddlers who were killed and everything with seven children and three adults who were killed from two families. Um, and it just total mistaken identity. Just they attacked a guy who was a pro-American aid worker who had spent the day delivering water and food to poor people and they, and who was trying to get passage to the United States and they killed him and, and all this kin. Um, and which is kind of the perfect fitting, you know, uh, in that horrible black humor, ironic kind of way, the, the fitting into that war, which has been nothing but events like that for 20 years straight I and mean, that's what they've been doing for 20 years straight pete is killing some guy and his kids because they thought they were hitting some bad guy and that's the story of the whole damn afghan war and so then that's how it ended so oh and then uh the good news and then i'll shut up and i'll let you finish on this one more subject i want to bring up and then whatever else you got too if you want but um the good news is i'm done recording the audiobook i'm done editing the audiobook and have you heard? You're not done yet, are you? I'm I know you got a lot of stuff too. Yeah. I it, and it's long, man. It's long, but I sent it off to my guy who's doing the mastering on it to make it sound right, and then so we should have that published within the week. You awesome. know, as soon as he gets that back to me, I know he's out of the country right now, but he said he thinks he can do it just on his laptop with what he's got. Although he might have to bring it home, you know, before he can get it right. We'll see about that. But um, 
I think he said he thought he could get to it and you know while he's out of the country even so should be uh, should be able to get that guys uh, get that to you guys here within the week or so the audiobook of enough already and then I wanted to ask you about this is why I said at the beginning if you remember the I think it was was it you or Dave oh it was you when it you that interviewed me right away about the the vaccine yeah, yeah. passports and I had I gave you the white pill explanation that it's not gonna last and um I don't know if you saw this where it's BLM protesters are going up against the vaccine max, uh, mandate in um, in New York City. Again, you know, sectarianism will lead you astray, right? Oh, damn leftists and damn liberals and progressives, they're my enemy on everything. No, they're not. And, and what's the biggest Achilles heel in the vaccine passports? That poor black people don't trust government health care because they know from experience that you can't. And so they won't take the vaccine and super majority. I think it's a super majority of blacks under the age of 50 or something like that in New York are unvaccinated. And so then that means that the vaccine passport thing is just a de facto and very quickly, just kind of immediately. It's a de facto racial segregation. And so then, of course, immediate reaction against that is you can't do that. And so I think that to me is the most, you know, that was why I thought in the first place that it won't last. And then it looks like that's where the pushback is coming from. Some of it is coming from Black Lives Matter activists. I was wondering if you saw that, what you think of that? Yeah, I saw it. I'm, I'm all for chaos, especially when things like this happen. Um, when the when the three women from Houston went after the hostess. I didn't exactly champion it, but it was bound to happen. And, right. and I, we were having a conversation today in a chat and we were saying, unfortunately, it may take more incidents like that in order for this to really come to a head. And then when Black Lives Matter, it's like, OK, Black Lives Matter is going to go down there. I'm like, oh, this is great. I mean, I don't have to march with them. They don't need my support. But. I'm going to watch with bated breath because I think it's just fantastic to see, um, you know, to see these leftists go up against this leftist government and just watching, watch leftists fight. You know, it's like, I mean, enemy, you know, two enemies fighting, you know, as far as I'm concerned. And, um, you know, I mean, I just think that um, it's going to, it, it's going to be mass kind. It's going to be a mass kind of, resistance that's going to do it, especially in, like in New York City. Um, you've already seen parades. They've already done marches. And I was looking at the people in the marches. I mean, these didn't look like right wingers to me. You know, they look like you're, you know, they look like a lot of art students. They looked like it was pretty mixed. And, yeah. you know, that's pretty white pilling. But, you know, the one thing you worry about with New York and places like California is those are always the testing grounds when they want to go further in the country. So, it has to be stopped right there or else if it's not, um, it's going to be terrible. I mean, we're going to be there, you know, we're going to be in New York next weekend, next week. And to see, see exactly what it's going to be like there. And, yeah. um, man, I mean, I'm debating Bill Crystal at that event and it's, you know, the event had changed the rules from a proof of vaccine to a negative PCR test, but then, the city of New York changed the rules to know it has to be a vaccine proof of vaccine for everyone. So I know a lot of people are mad at me about that, that I'm doing it, but it's, you know, Gene Epstein has given me this opportunity to debate bill crystal and it already got canceled. It was supposed to happen in May of 2020. 
and it already got canceled because of the lockdowns and everything then. So it's not the kind of thing that I would like to participate in because of the vaccine mandate part. Um, you know, I, I hate to think, you know, the audience has got to go get a shot in order to go to it or any kind of, you know, whatever like that, if that's not what they want to do. Or this, is time, when, or this is when agorism comes in. Yeah. I mean, what am I going to do, though? Right. Like, I got to tell Gene, like, listen, we just got to do this thing in the middle of the street and <laughs> whatever. You know what I mean? Like, I got to he's he's kind of doing this for me, giving me this opportunity. So I got to take it. But, you know. I'm not looking forward to to doing many more events where I have to give in in this way. And I've seen like a lot of musicians or at least some musicians are announcing that they're not going to play in certain places where those are the rules and that kind of thing. So I would like very much to boycott New York City, but I'm, I can't do it next month. Um, you know, I got to make an exception for this because it's just too important because and what are you going to do? Right. But, I hear you. Um, hey, let's get out of here. We've been going along. Yeah, we should. Um Email me. People are asking me questions. Email me. Can we say everything on here? I think we did. All right. Well, thanks for doing the show with me, Pete. That was fun. Do we cover everything on your list there? Yeah. Until the next time. All right. See you guys.